Business is a very cold and dark and lonely endeavor. Until we move from that business model, we are going to continue to experience a less focused, less intelligent population because they don't spend they spend too much time scrolling because there's such a huge profit incentive to the corporations that own their attention already. And when you approach it from a marketing standpoint, it's cold, it's callous, it's features, it's benefits. The first thing that springs to mind is we did this thing with a client last year at a conference and it's like quite a small scale thing, like a very high value sale, super targeted market. Um, and it's in, a, it's in compliance and risk management. But one of the most powerful and compelling things you can do in life and in business. A lot of people assume that your focus is degrading because it's you're getting older and it becomes an individual problem and it's talked about as like an individualistic thing, especially in the West. But the point that he made is that what we don't pay attention to is that there's like hundreds of thousands of the world's smartest software engineers working at like being paid a lot of money to steal our focus to to take our attention and put it on a platform where they can sell it to some advertiser for dollars is engineer a story that inspires people to take action to solve things holding them back in life so that's what we talk about stories sure i guess we start on deep work why do you not do anything on Wednesdays but do a lot on Wednesdays? So, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> what is that? So, Wednesdays have kind of become this really interesting day for me. Like, and none of it's been my choice. Like, it's been the choice of my team around me. Mm. So, obviously, COVID was very like work from home, hybrid work, flexible working. And most of that has become bullshit in a lot of organizations now because they're like you must work from the office on monday thursday friday or monday wednesday and thursday and it's yeah. like that's not flexible that's just you have that's just like more totalitarian that's than it was before. i couldn't say i fucking yeah, yeah go right and but it is more totalitarian it is than right it is. it's like you must be here on these specific days and we are watching and it's like has no one learned anything that we're trying to get outputs here. We're not paying attention to inputs. Anyway, yeah. so <laughs> I kind of let my team organize themselves. They've all kind of decided that running a creative business, they need some time in the middle of the week to really get into work. They've mm. kind of done all of their Monday, Tuesday collaboration, got all the ideas rolling. Now it's time to get shit done. Hmm. It's probably because I'm a real hard person to get shit done around because I'm always running around like, you know, like... <laughs> ideas do this let's change oh, yeah. this right and it's are like, you like visionary Elon yeah, Musk? i'm or like magpie oh. shiny shit anyway um depends on you know they might have a different opinion to me but <laughs> they yeah leave a comment if you're listening to yeah me. absolutely <laughs> what do you really feel no yeah. consequence they won't get fired no consequence but, uh, <laughs> yes, maybe maybe go with the anonymous burner account eh? um, <laughs> yeah they're good the anyway so they all decided to work from home on wednesdays 
and at first i hate i don't work from home on wednesdays i always work from the office i hate working from home yes. i just don't like being sitting i like having delineation between work and my personal life yeah um and at first i was like full of hate that everybody worked from home on Wednesdays. I never expressed this to them because I was like, we're being flexible. And I was like, but all my friends aren't here and I want to spend time talking to people because that's how I get energy. Oh. And I was like, oh, I feel sad. <laughs> Road rage, how'd you yeah. get it out of you? Just yelling at the wall while no one was around. Um, but Get a volleyball called Wilson, put your hand on it. Well, I have this baseball bat that I bought on a trip to the US and I just wandered around the office doing phone calls, swinging, <laughs> swinging the baseball bat. Um, kind of being as obnoxious as I could because no one could no I'm just kidding I probably didn't do that but I was just like I was just like I don't want to do this I want people to come in that was kind of my reaction and then I realized that it was actually a golden opportunity for me to also do some deep work Mm. Um, it was a golden opportunity for me to structure a day where I didn't need to be available for interruption that I could go and say let's get some focus done you know i could fill my morning with client meetings i could fill my afternoon with you know whatever i needed to focus on to move the company forward Mm. and so it kind of became this like it's become this really nice part of the week now where i get to actually move things forward and i get to feel like i'm having you know the middle day of the week has gone from being this like scrambling in all directions to actually I'm doing all of the stuff that I can't do on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday because I've got other people around. They're, you know, I'm work- we're working collaboratively on challenges, which is great, but it's really hard to structure. Yeah. Whereas Wednesdays, I can structure one day a week now where I just do things my way and do the work that needs to be focused on and the work that needs to be done and the thinking that maybe I don't get to do outside of that so on the deep work because off air you talk you seem quite structured in the way you approach life and things like you have a reason for a lot of things how do you get yourself into deep work mindset and how do you prioritize what needs to be done do you have a process well i don't know if i am that structured like <laughs> i know well you're the magpie but you also <laughs> fucking got routines you know am, what I mean? am i am i full of shit about this i don't know um <laughs> So, are you full of shit about this? Yeah, you should always ask yourself that. Question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, full of shit a lot, man. Yeah, I, well, I need to work on it. My wife would tell you I'm full of shit. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. But so it all started with. I think I had always had this nagging feeling that I was not very focused. Hmm. Right, like I was unable to pay attention to the things that I wanted to pay attention to at the flick of a switch when I wanted to pay attention to them. And I'd always viewed that as like an individual issue of mine. I was like, I'm just like all over the place. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm all over the shop. I go out and do all these things. Cause, and then I read a book by a guy called Johan Hari called mm-hmm. stolen focus. Yeah. I don't know that one. Um, it's pretty new. I think it came out last year mm. and it's him exploring the relationship that humans have with degrading focus yeah right yeah and i think and one of the points that he makes is a lot of people assume that your focus is degrading because it's you're getting older 
and it becomes an individual problem and it's talked about as like an individualistic thing especially in the west but the point that he made is that what we don't pay attention to is that there's like hundreds of thousands of the world's smartest software engineers working at like being paid a lot of money to steal our focus to to take our attention and put hmm. it on a platform where they can sell it to some advertiser for dollars <laughs> and the point that he made which i kind of tended to agree with is that it's a societal issue but to fix it as a societal issue you have to have individuals starting to take a bit of action over their own lives and focus to start that and at that point i went right like routines are going to be really important i'd already been like pretty interested in mindfulness and you know the formation of habits and what that meant and it was kind of putting this together that i was like the reason none of this ever sticks or it feels like none of it ever sticks probably does but it feels to me like none of it ever sticks is that i've got all of this stuff working against me to keep me distracted yeah right and so i need to create some routines and some rituals that stop me from getting distracted all the time because when you're distract when you're easily distracted and you don't have like a thing to sheet yourself back to whether it's a list of things you want to achieve that day or just one big priority or a, a ritual you go through in the morning you immediately become reactive mm. and it's easy as a business owner to be reactive because there's so much stuff going on around all the time you've got people problems you've got money stuff you've got client stuff you want to dip your nose into projects where maybe you're not necessarily needed but you feel like you can add some value and you become super reactive to all this stuff and by the time you get to the end of the week you've been super busy and achieved nothing yeah yeah <laughs> right feet, yeah. or you've achieved treadmill nothing that you wanted to achieve when you started mm. the week mm. and so that's kind of been like it's a fairly recent part of the journey oh, yeah, for okay. me like it, it's not you know something i've been really paying attention to for a couple of months now not like i'm not I've, i haven't been like this forever but it's been pretty transformative because it's changed my approach to what i need to do to move the company forward rather than just react let yourself get distracted mm. go on reddit <laughs> <laughs> is that your poison instagram like, is mine nah man so i got rid of instagram and facebook like two years ago three years yeah. ago i was very happy with that decision mm. got rid of twitter at the same time as well or x all the bots yeah x yeah it's called x now. Right, but it's gonna like, be a payment process oh, fucking hell i don't understand most it. powerful man in the world i'm sh like sh he must have a strategy right oh yeah he, no, there's got to be a plan yeah it's wechat he basically talked about he had a plan 20 years ago that he thought about doing with PayPal, and they never did it. And now he's doing it 20 years later with... Twitter. Twitter, or X. Yeah, he didn't give a fuck about the code. It was just the users, and then you use that um, to use that audience and then be a single source of truth. So WeChat in China is you can pay with everything. Yeah, it's yeah. basically a single oracle of truth. Um, and now with blockchain, I imagine there's quite efficient... And he part of the motivation as well is to he wants to be able to create a system where if he's got a gun held to his head, can it still operate within the the core values of what the company stands for? Yeah. 
So it's going to be an interesting. It'll be interesting to see. He's going to wake up dead one day. Like you just can't, you can't come after money like that, bro. Yeah, I and know. that much power, especially in the United States of America. Ta-da! Yeah, personal chef drowned. You see that? Yeah, yeah. Barack Obama's personal chef drowned in a drowned in a pond. What? I don't know many people that drown in ponds. I don't know many personal chef people with personal chefs. Yeah, you got to get out there, man. You got to stretch your perception of money. <laughs> yeah, right. Someone was saying to me, I got bailed up. I'll, I'll let you get back to what you're talking <laughs> no, about. No, 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 you're right. I got bailed up by a guy, Cameron Stewart. Uh, this is a short, long story. But he he reached out to me because he's like, I want to know if these social media people are full of shit. And he just goes on this like thing to meet them. And I look up his website. It doesn't look you know, too credible. I'm like, who is this guy? Blah, blah, blah. And I thought he was full of shit because he's like, oh, yeah, I sold 300 odd properties. You know, I'm making 10 or so million dollars a year, whatever it was. And I was like, you're full of shit, cunt. And he's like, no, I'm not. That's all right. It will take you time. But he wasn't full of shit. I posted about it. And recently, he just reached out to me again to help. He's like, bro, something's going on with you. What the fuck's up? So he comes and has coffee with me. And he says, I asked him for help. I'm like, look, I need a stretch. I'm being a little bitch. He's like, all right, got to make 30 grand in four weeks, which is more money than I've ever thought possible. Yeah. which is my limited around money. And he's like, if you can't do that, you're you're not a businessman. Like I did a deal of $600,000 the other day. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, I need to be around more people where that's just like. Oh yeah, man. Like I was in, on this, on the trip where I read this book, mm. I went, I spent a couple of days in Singapore. Oh yeah. And it was like the first time I'd been out of the New Zealand, Australia bubble for business <laughs> since before COVID okay interesting and i was just like so much money running around singapore just like slapping myself in the face being like how the hell did you forget that all of this stuff was out here you know like how did you forget that the like central key to the southeast asian market is the city and Mm. look at all of this stuff look at all this money look at the way they do things look at just the levels of like it's crazy it's like exponentially different mm. to what we have here how do you stretch your mind like i was talking to someone that charged 2.5 million dollars for like websites and shit over a few years i'm like because it's not that much different like if you yeah. help someone for a grand this is if arguably it's more money more effort because they ask they have higher expectation yeah. and then you charge someone you know two hundred thousand dollars or whatever and then you get that it's all numbers on the screen like you got to add value you got to yeah. sell it but like it's yeah. your limiting perception of money that hampers that yeah and i think, think like <clears throat> i think it's a couple of th- it's the fear of people saying no that's mm. too much money and not wanting to lose something because you've asked for more than you think something could like they would say yes to what's the biggest number you've said to someone and they said yes uh, the biggest number I ever said to someone and they said yes was like 180 grand. That's crazy. Yeah. And I was like, all right. <laughs> I was like, did you shake after? You're like, <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, like there's value there. So it's all good, right? Yeah. Like, did you sell it to yourself? How do you believe it's worth 180,000? How did you get to there in your head? How did I believe it was worth 180,000? Because I believe in what we do. I believe in our team our ability to execute and when we costed up what we were looking to do that's what it cost mm. right and it's like you know it's probably worth more than 180 grand mm. yeah 
<laughs> I just ask that because a lot of people fall short on that. Like if you just yeah. had a few clients that you charge a ridiculous amount of money to, you would provide better service. Totally right. And and then, you know, but I think like often what we try and do here is we try and do a volume game mm. in a pretty small market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like we're trying to build, you know, we try to build these like big businesses out of doing volume in New Zealand. Yeah. It's like we're not pack and save. <laughs> you know, we're selling like high value knowledge services. Mm. It's not, you know, we can't do that for everybody in the country. No. No one wants, you know, we've, we want it. We need to have a niche. We need to have a tight market. We need to think differently about how we do things. We need to think about how do we provide amazing quality, amazing value, amazing insight storytelling as our core offering and how do we like fairly charge for that so we really are capturing the value that we create for our clients and then how do we then go and replicate that in a similar niche overseas because it's what hold like what holds a business in new zealand from exporting their knowledge is that they don't have any sector like expertise mm. that they're really good at what they do they are a high quality design business or a high quality consultancy or whatever it is but then they go and try and sell in australia and it's like there's a whole pile of high quality consultancies over here that are probably as good as you guys are and they're just down the street and i can go and strangle them if i have a problem with service delivery whereas it's really hard to strangle you because i never want to go to new zealand in my life because it's you know too small for me and i'm my sydney mindset right so how are you ever going to enter that market hmm. if you don't have some level of specialization that helps you stand out because there's a lot of um a lot of businesses they get in new zealand they try to go abroad and they fail and how a lot of big corporates here in new zealand get around that putting my financial advisory hat on is they pay dividends they pay share profits yeah because they can't grow beyond a certain point yeah do you think that's because there's not enough of a market to be specialized in New Zealand and they go off there and they're trying and then they don't stand out or what do you think leads to them failing or maybe they're not failing or I mean it depends on how you define failure right or success like paying a dividend a listed company paying a dividend in the eyes of yield focused shareholders is probably a pretty good thing <laughs> but if we think about it for the whole country like if our big corporates mm. are really like saturated them if they've saturated the New Zealand market to a point that they can pay dividends really reliably and they're just going to like take cash from customers and put it back into the hands of the shareholder who also happens to be the residential property owning class then we're just going to see more inequality less innovation mm. and we're going to get fatter and less competitive and like the difference in our ability to create wealth as a nation is the margin we can make on our exports and as we export food and beverages it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller and we need to be exporting the types of knowledge services that these companies create and whether it's from inside those businesses or from spin outs that those businesses create from staff who are super innovative and talented and passionate and figure out a problem to solve what like whatever it is 
we need to be creating a world where we encourage New Zealand companies to do that. But the hard thing is that it's it's you know like big fish, small pond. So you don't have to be focused. You don't have to be niche. Mm. But once you go overseas, you're really big pond. Suddenly you're a bit of a smaller fish <laughs> and you can't go and compete with the number one attitude in a market where no one knows who you are. You have to go and learn how to be a startup, a scale up, a challenger brand again. Mm. And that's what I think holds New Zealand businesses back from th- thinking about growth beyond New Zealand and therefore becoming really tightly specialized. You, um, you, off here as well, you, you talked about the, the need to, to move away from that primary products component, you know, where nation yeah. losing money. Yeah. So we're getting poorer, mate. We are getting the wealth poor. and quality. Are there going to be protests? Are you going to be in the front with a picket sign? What are you going to? It's New Zealand. There won't be protests. <laughs> you don't reckon? We'll just sit on our hands and mumble about it until it's all gone. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a lot of apathy, right? And I think that, you know, we are like, we're empirically getting poorer. We've been, everyone loves to say it. In 1950, we were the third richest country GDP per capita on the planet. Mm. Right. Everybody who's passed us in the last 50 years, and it's like 26 countries, mm. has either been an extraction economy, oil, lithium, that sort of stuff, or an innovation economy. There's no no one who suddenly worked out how to become the greatest, like beat us at primary products who's moved above us on the chart. Mm. Right, we're still a, like one of the world's most efficient primary products producers. Mm. But if we want to grow as a nation, we need to be attracting people who want to earn lots of money, who want to do cool stuff. And as when you're sliding down that GDP per capita chart, the inference is you're sliding down the income per person chart, and that doesn't make you an attractive place to live. Right, so we have to figure out a way to stop relying on the export of primary products and start exporting innovation and knowledge which is something we're actually pretty good at because we create really interesting ideas and really good companies here but we don't have the whatever it is we don't have it we haven't figured out how we turn that into our national obsession with growth overseas and i would argue it's because we don't have a vision of where we want to go yeah and there's like a strong parallel between that and business, right? It's like as micro as you want to go to like an individual level of not having a personal vision of where you want your life to go to a whole of nation level of not having a vision of where we want to end up and starting to execute towards that. You just end up reactive, spinning the wheels, no plan, right? Mm. You react to the problems that come up rather than trying to figure out how to take advantage of the challenges that you are faced with to to like further you towards the outcome you're seeking at the end so let, let's say let's say you're a mage you're like a wizard and you have the power to wave a magic wand or you're the prime minister that's in a dictatorship and you can influence everything at once <laughs> how, how are you going to turn it around from us to stop going that poor direction and, and and focus on that human capital make us more like singapore vibe you know so are we too lazy? I don't think we're too lazy. I just think it's easy to be lazy when you have no direction. 
Okay, so right. you're big on If you wake up vision. on a Sunday morning and you've got nothing to do all day, mm. go to the beach. Well, on the couch. <laughs> yeah, eat some food, get some stuff. You're going to eat some food, you're going to get some. Yeah, you're going to cook like some, like fry up some bacon that you've got in the fridge. You're going to. I don't eat breakfast anymore. Get, Fucking ruins my life. You're going to get Uber Eats for mm. lunch. You're going to maybe like. Pizza. Have you yeah. had heard of Pizza Bake? Pizza Bake. It's like Scottish deep fried pizza. So pizza and then batter and then deep fried. Oh, yo. That's fucked up. That's nuts. I love food. I don't know. I don't know if I want that though. Like that just sounds like that just sounds like pain. Do the Homer Simpson test when he's trying to pump out like some pounds. You rub it, and if on paper, if it goes clear, yeah, you gotta eat it. You gotta eat it. That's the episode where he becomes like, yeah, I think the moo moo, the moo moo, and the the thing that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yeah, to wash yeah. myself with a rag on a stick. That was Bart. That's a different episode. That was. Can yeah. they see the future? Thoughts on Simpsons. Can they see the future? We'll come back to whatever we're talking about. <laughs> Can they see the future? Oh, we were about to get into some stuff about like the future of New Zealand, but let's talk about the, the <laughs> Simpsons. Simpsons. Well, they predict. Have you seen the prediction thing I'm talking if about? If only they could have done this about New Zealand. Yeah, well, they're going to get poorer. That's my prediction. They're going to get poorer. Based on what you said. I know but, nothing about But the... Can they predict the future? Simpsons. No, I don't think they can. Why are they right so often? Because they made so much content? Because they made so much content. Like, like they predicted it's a confirma- Trump. It's confirmation bias, though, right? Like, what else did they predict? And like, no one's ever gone back through the Simpsons episodes and looked at all of the things they predicted. Good point. That didn't come true, right? Like the Albuquerque baseball team. You know that episode, Hungry Hungry Homer, where he ties himself to the flag in center field. <laughs> no. So, like, the Springfield baseball team is called the is called the springfield isotopes in the show oh yeah right like you're a resident simpson expert mate. I didn't no, I'm a, i know too much about minor league baseball <laughs> and so and in the episode they move to they're going to move the team to albuquerque oh yeah and homer goes on a hunger strike to protest impressive anyway um the team ends up moving to albuquerque anyway so when this happened in the show the albuquerque baseball team which was named something else at the time, called themselves the Albuquerque Isotopes. Yeah. Now that's like the Simpsons predicted the Albuquerque Isotopes. But it's really just the Isotopes, or whatever they were called before, capturing like the cultural zeitgeist mm. of the show, right? So the show's like such a power, powerful cultural influence that it influences outcomes. Like, yeah, like I would say that mm. there's a strong chance that Donald Trump got the idea to run for president from The Simpsons. He, he, so he, could he, you say he, they predicted it or they just actually influenced it and we should all hate The Simpsons for causing mm, that situation? There's a few interesting points here. There's a lot well, of interesting well, stuff. There is there. a lot of... So one thing, there was um, Darren Brown. He's like a mentalist slash maybe con artist, not sure. <laughs> he predicted seven from seven horse races by sending out 240,000 predictions. So people thought he was right because he got seven for seven with one of them, but failed with two hundred and forty. Exactly. And then the other one is, you know, that how they say on Facebook's listening. Yeah. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it we're getting influenced by Facebook to have the conversation about yeah. you know whiskey, or are we saying it and they're listening to us? Or do they have such a good data model of me or of you mm. that they know exactly what that person is looking at? Yeah. And they can just use the law of large numbers to serve you what you want to see at the right time. They're getting good. Like at the moment, I just like, with Facebook ads, broad targeting, algorithm work it out. Yeah, totally. It's, it's amazing, awesome. isn't it? It's insane. It's incredible. It's 
is it good for the future of the world and our <laughs> no, we're fine. No, we're people have no self-awareness it's, it's yeah, terrible yeah. it's like the fact that they are you know like until we change the surveillance capital as a model of social media mm. until we move from that business model we are going to continue to experience a less focused less intelligent population because they don't spend they spend too much time scrolling because there's such a huge profit incentive to the mm. corporations that own their attention already to keep oh, keep it but this is and this is this is where the vision thing i think comes oh, back, you pull like, it back you're gone no 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 this i think this is really important because if you don't have a vision for what you want to achieve whether that's as a person or a nation mm. how do you resi- how do you how do you decide to change from that path that the market is forcing you to take mm. right if you don't have a vision you can't say oh actually no i want to change my life i don't want to be beholden to the algorithm anymore just like as a country if you don't have a vision you can't say no i want to move from instead of creating incremental improvements to things that aren't working Mm. i want to create massive change for greater good for what I believe the future of this country should be. Hmm. Right? Make New Zealand great again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just, just... Oh, you carry on, carry on. I was just fucking with you, but yeah. No, I mean, it, like... Because that's not really a vision. That's it's just not really a, a problem. It's just, it's, just a, it's just a pithy statement that makes people feel like you, sh- you have a vision. Yeah. Right? It's like... Yeah, Trump, we're coming after you, brother. They'll do it, right? It's like... Yeah. I can't remember the last time a... I saw a political party, Mm. not just in New Zealand, but like in the Anglo-speaking world, express like a coherent long-term vision for what they want to achieve. Mm. Valid. Because it's about power. Their vision is not our vision. Their vision is get power. Oof. You got a few hot takes today. Ah. So but it's true, right? It's like no, they're all good people. No, but you do what you're, you do. <laughs> we all want power. We all want status, really. Ju- just like you work your way up through a corporate and you're like, yeah, I care about the customer. I love mm. the customer. Mm. We love the customer. <laughs> mm, maybe we like the profit more once you get to the top, right? Once your bonus depends on the share price yeah, yeah. as an executive, what do you care about? The shareholder outcome or the customer outcome? once they once those things diverge right like it's the same in politics the shareholder is not the voter yeah who's the shareholder in politics the shareholder in politics Lobbyist? is the party oh the party okay okay right okay it's we do what's right for the party because that's how you build the collective that gets into power and what's right for that collective is to get into power because the mm-hmm. view is that we can't change anything unless we're in power. So therefore, we must get into power to change things. So therefore, it becomes all about get power. That's the like intrinsic motivation. That's yeah. what's, what's like Makes driving sense. everybody. So the vision is, it's, you're disincentivized to have a vision to motivate those people because those people are motivated by power, I think. Yeah, I make makes sense. And what influences the parties? Because on one hand, in order to achieve power, you need money. Yeah, and 
power is you archetype a story that will appeal and it tends yeah. to be blame something is whatever's whatever's e- p- politically expeditious to win votes right <laughs> so, so yeah. like when kerry allen which i think is a really sad situation from a mental health perspective and oh, it yeah. shows how like badly we bad we are at handling mental health in wellington but that's another story for another day crashes her car into a another car like really sad situation it's like a this is going to cost the election for a party not this is what this party believes in the future of new zealand Mm. (laughs) this is what this party believes in the future of new zealand it's like this is just an example of them not being together it's a great opportunity to score some politically expeditious points and win some votes Mm. right votes power all they want is power right there's no incentive in the system to build vision uh, you, you speak it spin some fire that i've never oh. thought of it makes sense <laughs> but like i've thought about this quite a bit yeah randomly <laughs> because <laughs> i've thought about this quite a bit right because as a what 34 year old entrepreneur yeah, yeah. Five business, years. business owner in new zealand right like this shit matters Mm. like the vision and the direction of the country what we decide to invest in and grow really matters to our generation right like we don't have a we haven't had an easy route into a like world-class tax-efficient income-generating capital-gaining asset on the most part yeah like sure some of us have you know some people have been able to do it through either hard work or parental help right but the system is like structured against younger people generating wealth from housing yeah because yeah. that wealth's already been generated yeah no, it's gone. right um so the response has to be from our generation is like how do we lift incomes how do we lift our wealth as a nation because if we don't we'll be a we'll be selling less stuff for cheaper to a country that's getting poorer on a global scale we'll be losing talent offshore so instead of being able to deliver that amazing service in new zealand the lifestyle premium that we do have here will disappear Mm. because it'll be like sure i might take a 25 percent wage cut to live in auckland over sydney because i really love the lifestyle but if i'm working in a job that doesn't interest me not doing innovative stuff there's a lot of pe- people out there trying to do this yeah but it's hard when you don't have like a general societal motivation to do it man yeah you're hitting some real pain points there i mean and and then you also think of the decreasing birth rate and the aging population as well and then people having a max exodus and right. COVID didn't help you know people right. we took a strong approach it upset a few people COVID didn't help but good. everybody had to deal with it right it's not like it was a New Zealand problem no I mean our a lot of the feeling I've seen at least in comments and talking to people has been I don't want to live here anymore I'm going to Mexico because this government's you know too controlling and yada 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 that is a component not as much a component as hey I can't afford to live here in the way that I want to live here but frustration like often i think is pointed at a government being controlling or doing the right like it's not the politicians okay it's a failure to respond to like 
global macroeconomic trends over a period of 30 years that has left us playing like policy catch up and not being able to do it because we have this three year term and we have two super inspiring blokes called Chris who are both playing not to lose rather than playing to win which means that we're playing to lose they're playing not to lose as a nation which is the best way to lose so how, how do we fix it if you could if i could fix it like would you change procedural things systems things because you said you thought about it a lot but i know so interest. like i don't know how you change it from a government like a systemic government oh, yeah, okay. angle right i don't I don't know how you create a world where suddenly it becomes attractive for democratically elected governments, which are really good for a lot of reasons, right? They're really good for a lot of like justice and like equity and opinion, like share of opinion reasons to suddenly become this like long-term visionary, like one party state. I just don't know if you can reconcile that, Mm. right? But you have to have change in it. So the change, I think, has to come from the private sector at first, right? The private sector has to say, we want to start to believe in what we think this country should become and we want to start to use our influence to to build it and to push the government to jump on board in the first instance. There's, oh, you go. Here you go. There you go. I was thinking of, um, I can't remember if it was Suzuki or Samsung. It was a Japanese company. I don't even know if those are Japanese, so it's fucking racist to start with. But um, there was a point where Japan was, like China in a sense, they were, no, they were known for mass production, yep. not quality. And one of the, the owners of that business decided, we want to envision that isn't just about our company, but it's about the country. We want to make Japan known for quality. Yeah. So there are things like that, you know. Right. So so you you can influence it, right? You mm. you can make this you can make this change. The problem is that the government has to come along for the journey to build the pipes. Mm. Right? To build the infrastructure to fit, you know, to build the literal pipes that help people live on a daily basis so that the private sector can then go and do its thing and and innovate that's a challenge right but the you know it's about i think it's about changing our we have to change the way we talk and tell stories as leaders as business like as businesses to go i want to i want to believe that we can go over offshore i want to believe that we can do stuff that's great i think that you know i can you know we can export our knowledge offshore we can prove that concept and then let governments do what governments are pretty good at, which is go, oh, this is working really well. Let's go and gas that up. Right? We have to, t- you, like, we can't wait for them to yeah, solve yeah. the problem for us. It makes sense. Like, if, if you want to win over the public to get more power, so let's assume your, you know, yeah. hypothesis, you incentivize that by showing that the, the, the collective opinion is in that direction. Yeah. And if we jump on that and encourage that, then we get our more power more power. Totally. That makes sense. And it and so that comes down to how you tell stories and how you influence in the private sector. Oh, interesting question. I'm gonna interrupt you yep. today. New Zealand. Let's say New Zealand was your client and you had to archetype a story. Yeah. That will inspire a nation. <laughs> no pressure. 
what would the process be that you would go through to either articulate the story to discover the story and then what story might you tell <laughs> right <laughs> man ask me the little questions yeah, eh? it so it's deep work day deep work day no so <laughs> there's a book oh, yeah. called belonging oh, yeah. by a guy called owen eastwood who is a like mental skills coach for sports teams He's worked with the England fo- England football team under Gareth Southgate. He's worked with the South African cricket team that was number one in the world. Hmm. Um, and he has he develops this idea of an us story that you use to create common purpose to move forward, right? And when I was reading the book, it struck me that this is the kind of thing that we're missing. The process that he goes on for developing these stories is mm. like it's influence he's maori and it's influenced by his learning about te ao maori and his understanding of how maori used storytelling and whakapapa and us stories mm. to create common cause and purpose in a culture that didn't have any written written language and therefore wasn't able to write a set of instructions down on a piece of paper for people to follow so instead of you know if you give someone a basically the theory i think being that if you give someone a bullet point list verbally they're probably not going to remember it but if you tell them a compelling story that includes the items on that bullet point list they're probably going to have a better chance of remembering it right so that drives the storytelling and so what new zealand needs is it's like togetherness us story it and that that's a vision right it's a it's a this is where we want to go this is what life is like this is why we have the right to this because it came from our ancestors not just maori ancestors but our you know the initial you know immigrants to new zealand who were generally not the you know fat you know high luxury london people they were from scotland they were from wales they were from ireland mm-hmm. they came because they believed that they could make a better life here they you know the irish the scottish the welsh are all fantastic story you know the northern english are all fantastic storytelling cultures right we have you know the pacific culture maori culture that's an amazing storytelling culture right to get convince people to move to the ass end of the world you have to tell a pretty compelling story right Hmm. and so that's for me where we need to take the new zealand story it's not about like look at our beautiful green trees and our beautiful wine and stuff because we can't compete with that we've got poorer over the last 50 years trying to compete with that we need to take we need to say actually we have this compelling ability to tell stories and to deliver those stories in innovative ways and that is our national that's our national competitive advantage that's what we're all here to do we're all here to to use that to drive new zealand's economic growth you did well there brother you got my vote that was interesting belonging but i don't know if it's a i just don't know if that's a thing that a political party could achieve yeah i mean it's culture driven it's so culture driven right it's totally driven with the values and the culture that we have and when you see like you can choose to see 
cultural you can choose to see like issues in society as either driven by like cultural fracture or by you know people being shit people and i think a lot of the things that we experience at the moment are driven by cultural and values fracture Mm. right a lot of like crime a lot of you know a lack of willingness to have dialogue about issues rather than just going no i think you're wrong binary one zero world right Mm. like i think a lot of that's driven by cultural fracture but it's easier to say oh it's driven by people being shit yeah yeah, yeah. you know it's easier to say we should punish criminals because of crime because they do crimes and crimes are bad than it is to say actually it's a bit more complex than that yeah (laughs) there's some value stuff going on here that we need to understand to create change i always um try and push this on people um to to think like do we do you want people to suffer or do you want a better world because I think that's an important thing to recognize, especially in the, the criminal component. Like, let's say someone's caused yeah. irrevocable damage to the community in some way. And then your motivation is to hate and to blame without recognizing your contribution to your own failings in life. Yeah. So they're a scapegoat for your inadequacy. Sure. Yep. So do you want them to suffer? And if you do, what about you makes you want them to suffer? as opposed to if you actually cared about them and supported them and held them account, they actually might be better contributors to society. You can challenge me on that. You can disagree with anything I say. I don't give a fuck. I think it's a really interesting question, right? Like there's, because there's a spectrum for everything. There's like... Death penalty? Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Man, put me on the spot. No, there's some really abhorrent shit yeah, that for people sure. do for sure right like some really fucking abhorrent shit yeah. and i think there's there's no way that we should condone any of that but the question that i suppose i have is like what if the answer is not in how you rehabilitate or cause suffering it's in trying to stop people falling off the cliff in the first place i'll get them sooner oh, i mean right? it's better yeah like it's better yeah so you know why do we invest so much more money in jails or in policing, right? That's the ambulance. That's sitting there at the bottom of the cliff mm. waiting to pick up the smash bodies and try and stop this like thing that's being caused by social trend or cultural fracture or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. yeah. Why aren't we investing the same money at the top? Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, again, vision. vision. We don't have one. So we react to what we see, which is ram raids, right? Mm. Ram raids are awful. People should not do ram raids. Yeah, yeah. But there's a the the people individually who do ram raids are bad people. But there's a reason that the cultural fracture has happened over time that has put them in a situation where they feel like that's what they have to do. Well, that's what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. And if we don't start with a vision, we don't have any way of going, actually, we're going to... It's not... You can't solve that problem overnight. You can put a police car with two new cops on it on the street in, what, like 12 weeks of recruitment and training? Something like that? A year? I don't know. I have no idea what it takes to go through police college. Yeah, yeah. But you need 
10 years of policy shift across pretty much a holistic set of policy mm. to fix the cultural fracture. So it's really hard. So why do it without a compelling story that says, this is why we need to do it because we want to be better. So yeah, because there's a few things, like you think of, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and the whole health industry is based on like the ambulance analogy. Yeah, A totally. lot of things are. So do you think that's just the inertia of it being too hard and not a motivation to do why these are big? Well, <laughs> you get some good questions, bro. It's really hard. I, <clears throat> I think it's really hard to solve a problem hmm. that you don't really deeply spend the time trying to understand it, right? Mm. It's difficult to... And I'm still nowhere near there. Like, I'm... I, trying to avoid this kind of com- conversation at dinner parties because it's just <laughs> like my thoughts aren't fully formed on yeah, some yeah. of this stuff yet but you know it human nature is to take the path of least resistance right we want the quickest like biologically we want the quickest path from stimulus to dopamine i think that's right mm. but like that's what we're after so we're like naturally wired to say how can I get to like the quickest, easiest solution? And the quickest, easiest solution tends to happen when you interpret the problem in a way that's easy to solve or you feel like is easy to solve, mm-hmm. right? You don't take on the, like, you don't think about the, the 15 to 20 things that happened before that problem showed up in, the form it's in you don't think about the impact the 15th 20th order impact of the solution it's really hard to do mm. you look at the individual problem and you go we want to solve that problem we don't we don't care about the impact on a whole pile of other stuff right yeah uh, like crime's a really interesting one because i think we have like this worked example for putting more cops on the streets mm. in america that hasn't worked right yeah yeah. so like it you can't tell me that more cops on the streets with more firepower has worked because it hasn't worked in america right there's a whole pile of stuff to unpack there but that's not the solution but it's the easy solution tomorrow because it makes the community feel safer which is what the community really wants in a moment of crisis yeah you need, you need more power to you need more power, going. right? And so, because we're not telling a compelling story that says this is why you need to trust us on our journey of change. Yeah, yeah. I you get know? it. Yeah, yeah. you, you fucking you made a compelling argument there, <laughs> <laughs> random. Because anyway. I think anyway, we'll get on to other things. Um, well, one of the one of the studies I came across is the the frequency of which you catch someone. So how soon you catch them with a crime will determine yep. the trajectory of their criminal career. But and I've also um, lack of a better word, I've talked to a lot of evil people, shall we say? Because <laughs> I I love find them interesting. I love Absolutely. them. I love everyone. Um, and the the common trend I see is a, a feeling of an alienation, so an totally. exclusion, which gets capitalized by someone with an incentive, which may be a gang, that benefits from using that injustice and gives them a sense of belonging. Yep. And then gives a reason to hate, to justify their bad behavior. So they've never done anything bad. There's always a reason. There's always a good reason. And that's because they've been told a compelling story that's 
provided them with a sense of togetherness with a particular yeah. cause, yeah. which has inspired them to act in the way that that cause acts. Hmm. Right? So it's proof that if we did that in a positive way at a social level, it would work. Yeah. I mean, it makes right? rational sense. It makes, ra- it makes rational sense. Yeah. Like... So we got to teach not, people to make stories. <clears throat> we do have to teach people to make stories. <laughs> Should we, we teach them to make stories? We have to. We have to teach better storytelling, and we're already pretty good at it. Mm. Like our advertising agencies, our big creative agencies, are globally renowned within their like big agency groups for doing great creative storytelling work. Hmm. Right? Like they foreign representatives of those agencies buy New Zealand creatives to do work for their clients. It's not something we talk about a huge amount. Right, it's not something we really know much about outside of the advertising industry because we don't see those ads going out on TV. But we're already really good at it. Hmm. People want to come and make movies in this part of the world. We're already really good at it. You know, we're great at when we let ourselves be solving technology problems and telling great stories about them. I think innovatively. Yeah, but like there's just this disconnect because we don't have a vision, right? So we don't have that. Without that like central vision, it's really hard to take all of these cool individual good things and turn them into like actual radical change. Hmm. Move the line rather than change the direction of the line, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've been fascinated about. We've done fifty four minutes. Have we done fifty four? minutes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking about the fucking Simpsons. Who took us there, bro? Like, you did. That yeah. was you. <laughs> it was me. That was you. <laughs> it's your podcast, man. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. Why? Well, I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> we all are. Yeah. Well, I, I have been fascinated with the story because you know, it, there's so many facets in life where stories are an incredible, important component of that, whether it's in business, whether it's in relationships, like even in a story with your partner, you might think certain things that have happened to you in the past lead to the color orange meaning something different to you. Yeah, totally. So there's a story you're carrying into their behavior that's not fair on them. And if you understand each other's stories and how to create a narrative where it goes in a joint direction. So stories, let's learn about stories. How... What do you know about stories? How do you make stories? What the fuck is a story? What, what whatever you want to answer. What is a story? Um, <laughs> where <laughs> do been I start? Easy question. You can answer whatever question you want. I, just something to the stories. We're just here for content, right? Um, no. <laughs> I'm here to learn. Everyone so, else is just listening. <laughs> so what is a story? A story is like we get taught at school. A story is like a journey with a mm. character we have a protagonist an anta- and who is the hero or heroine we have an antagonist who's the person who causes the challenge for the, or the character who causes the challenge for the hero or the heroine we have a beginning we have a middle we have an end right that's the like central focus of a story it doesn't need to be told as a novel it can be told however you want right but it's a it's a compelling narrative that has that engages people emotionally that takes them on a journey of why behavior why they should change behavior or Mm. why they should do something right like even fiction books have messages right they're not just like 
words on a page that you know it's not love island <laughs> hey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Careful. That's... You learned some bullshit from some sitcom off air. Yeah, Love I know. Island, arguably one of the important shows of our generation. It's a cu- it's <laughs> it's very important. I can't say that. One Tree Hill, bro. I've been fucking going all in on One Tree Hill. It's you, the most fuck- I've never seen that. It sounds average. You start watching and this is like fucking I feel like it's appropriation of a suburb of Auckland. Yeah, they mention it once Do in they? nine seasons. Oh, that's not good enough. No. I grew up Right by Mangakiki. Oh, yeah. I'm not happy with that. One of those. Yeah, no, go for it. I'm a big New Zealand relevance klaxon kind of guy. I like <laughs> it when we get mentioned overseas. It makes me feel important. That's weird, eh? I froth over that too, eh? Yeah, everyone does. Weird. Small small country stuff, eh? It's like, weird, oh, eh? people know where we are. <laughs> it's like, oh, people. <laughs> we know we exist. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. That's a pretty low bar to clear. <laughs> Wait, random. Okay, we're going complete. I don't know where I was going, but here's a new one. I'm fascinated with religion. Yeah. I'm not religious at all. Yeah. But it tells a compelling story that totally. seems to have themes across religions. Yeah. And and it's so memorable and it's swept up billions of people. Yeah. So what what's the s- symbolic significance of religion or the story that makes it work so well? If there, it's true. It could be true. It there might not are be stories. Story. There's togetherness stories. All right, go on. Right? It's all the... like. Christianity, Judaism, <laughs> Islam, yeah. have like generalizing humongously relatively common core threads. Okay. Right? They're, they've got like, they use the same stories about the same people in the old, te- you know, they all believe that Abraham and Man, I'm really testing my. <laughs> yeah, there's similar prophets the across boards. There's similar prophets across all of these yeah, yeah. worlds, like how they apply different parts of it, you know. But they all represent. They all f- come out of people needing a feeling of belonging and guidance on how to live in a particular part of the world at a particular time, hmm. right? And then you like get into different parts of Christianity, right? doing so well in this question no (laughs) do you think about it too i think about about this catholicism is like wait what's that it's a big word for me the catholic church okay catholicism catholicism just sounded fancy it wasn't (laughs) is built out of the cultural situation at the end of the roman empire or the western roman empire Mm. to be historically correct but the end of the like western roman empire in 400 AD is the same time as the 500 AD is the same time as the rise of the Catholic Church in Rome it's a very like so it has it's taken that original layer and added layers of the us story on it to suit the needs of that population at that time the Protestant Church comes out of reform in Northern Europe at the end of the medieval period right it takes that same base model and culturally alters it to suit the cultural needs of the populace at the time so it's as compelling as possible mm. they're all just us stories hmm. right well yeah okay all right that's my take yeah, yeah no it's a great you take know, like islam's the same mm. you know judaism is similar it probably has had less alteration over time it's the oldest of the three of them you know like 
there's different iterations of like Hindu beliefs. There's Hinduism, there's Sikhism. There's they're all come out they all come out of these us stories that then get adapted to fit the belonging needs of populations at periods of time. That's kind of my like yeah. central theory, right? It's the power of religion is evidence of the power of storytelling. The, you know, if you can get people to agree with your story and to start to follow you on your journey, you can achieve a lot of shit. Yeah. Which is a marketing lesson as much as it is a like human behavioral theory lesson. Yeah. Well, there's um. I finally, got the word marketing in. Yeah, you see, we were talking about marketing this whole time. Yeah, exactly. Right? We yeah, well, I think so. Well, there's something you actually did well the whole podcast, which was um, comes from Russell Brunson. Whereas you're you're not trying to sell your service, your features. Yeah. You're trying to sell one core thing and break one core belief, and the core belief that you've broken in this podcast is that stories matter. Stories do matter. Like that's what, and that's what we are as people we're storytellers we're story consumers go back to the like ten thousand years ago sitting around a campfire mm. needing to figure out what you're going to do the next day where are the wildebeest or whatever going to be where do you find the grains that you're about to domesticate and end up with a nuclear bomb in ten thousand years time um mm. like how do you communicate that knowledge without writing you communicate it through either cave paintings which are just old comic strips <laughs> stories <laughs> Bro, your way your way of saying this is fascinating yeah or yeah. you communicate I mean, through verbal stories mm. old right? comic books how, <laughs> how, how do you just watching this will be offended well but that's what yeah like that's what um, it is right? yeah but there's no text there's no text that's not yeah, a because comic. people didn't have other things to distract them so they could pay attention to these things and like really understand the meaning of them hmm. right our storytelling has become much more neutered and more simple ever since we started to introduce more distraction because then people's attention spans have dropped hmm. right? so you think the quality of the story has gotten worse well i think the i think we've felt like there's this overarching need to simplify everything to like reductive lowest common denominator ideas yeah okay. right which i think is really sad because i think it doesn't actually hold out in what we see as successful storytelling nowadays right like when people trust their audience to follow them they often achieve much greater storytelling results than they do if they let their audience if they think their audience is super simple mm. and just tell them like the basic story and you know i think a great example of that is the avengers or the marvel cinematic universe oh yeah okay the first editions of marvel movies like iron man you know like the 2008 iron man all of that like i don't know whatever they call it nowadays phase one or whatever the hell it was but all of that like initial stuff was built around like giving source material to leading storytellers in hollywood and saying go tell these stories make them compelling hmm. and then they've changed it to like now we need to churn out x dollars of ticket sales every year we need a plan we need to make it really simple so people can consume these concepts hmm. and now at least from my perspective they are 
far less culturally relevant films than they were 15 years ago yeah yeah i think there's there's a few things as well like on one hand you might get rewarded because you give like you know i want to get to that wine bottle over there you make it really simple and easy and then you get the instant gratification yeah and you get reinforced that that's what people want but when you actually unpack beautiful stories there they don't tell you what to believe they give you the opportunity to discover it absolutely it's about taking people on a journey of self-discovery right like if you if someone believes that they have come to an insight themselves they're far more likely to take an action on that insight than they are if you just go this is the right way to do things do it like that there's right. um there's another guy uh, alex amosi i've talked about on every podcast because just frothing over him um but he talks about his content instead of saying how you should how i it's another way yep. of helping them discover for themselves and not telling them what to do because you think about that so much content business is lecturing i do yeah, all the time totally and if you ask the right question and they discover for themselves it's how you promote change totally that's exactly right that's the that's the thesis of storytelling right that is what we're trying to do we're not trying to tell people what to buy we're trying to encourage them to take action themselves to promote change that just ha- might happen to involve buying whatever we're selling them hmm. right and if it involves buying what they're you know if it involves us buying or them buying what we're selling them awesome big tech right but we're far more likely to make that meaningful and make it stick with more people if we don't start there if that's just a assumed side effect of how we do things yeah and a lot of like the bigger brands in the b2c world are quite good at this right they're good at building whether it's good for the world or not they're good at building meaning value creating a an emotional Mm. attachment but in the b2b world where i'm from we assume that everybody goes to work and becomes a rational <laughs> yeah, true. Like, yeah. We, we assume that everyone goes to work and becomes a rational decision maker and it's like this person who you thought was going to buy like mcdonald's for breakfast which is obviously a poor decision like i love mcdonald's for breakfast don't get me wrong yeah but a massive shout out like <laughs> One of the most transformative things in my 20s was the chicken bacon McMuffin. Like, fucking hell. Low calories. What, is it low calories? There's some oh. of them that are like 600 calories, and I'm pretty sure it's one of those, like, fucking breakfast meals. I was like, like cheese, bacon. Oh, yeah, but only if you have just the one thing, right? Yeah, it gets fucked. Like, I used to the Mac like, attack. When you go and order the, <laughs> can, I, can I order a chicken bacon muffin, please? Uh, two hash browns and a... Um, oh, then you're fucked. Yeah. And uh, a, massive Mc, a massive McMuffin. No, I'm a coffee snob, so I'd always go there to get my food and then get my coffee at the cafe on the way home. Anyway. Uh, anyway. They sell happiness, which is... They sell happiness, right? Or hangover. But, like, <laughs> why do I have that emotive reaction to want to go to Macca's when I'm on my way to work? But when I get to work, I'm suddenly, like, a Lethargic. rational robot yeah. who makes logical decisions based on cost-benefit analyses. <laughs> yeah valid point yeah i'm not no i make decisions i'm human i make decisions based on my gut based on my emotion based on my connection that i feel with the people around me while i'm making those decisions Mm. so instead of saying here's my proposal go sign it why aren't we going to the whole buying team or whoever it is 
here's the story. Here's the connectedness you should feel with us. Here's the emotion that you should feel when you deal with us. Here's how we're going to influence that. And we're going to influence that at every single point you touch our business. Mm. We don't care if you buy from us. That's power because I, I, I'm, I'm learning the marketing part, the story thing I suck at. The thing I, but in selling the same thing, you, you help someone make a decision. Yeah. Instead of trying to sell them something. But it's help you help them have an insight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the same thing we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. You lead them to a point where they have their own insight where they go, oh, yeah. Mm. It's hard. It takes a lot more effort than, it takes a lot more like cognitive effort at your end to figure out how you're going to approach someone like that than it does to just go, like, please buy from me. Yeah. Yeah. Or buy from me now. Yeah. I mean, it it all makes sense. So, okay, what's a a compelling story you've told in that B2B world or how can you work on that? Because that would be quite, I'm thinking while you're talking, being like, how could I archetype a story that's genuine to who I am and will be an experience they have? Yeah, right. So the first thing that springs to mind is we did this thing with a client last year at a conference and it's like quite a small scale thing, like very high value sale super targeted market um and it's in a it's in compliance and risk management (laughs) okay like the most boring shit (laughs) in the history of boring shit right and so we sat down and went how do we change how do we flip the narrative so instead of people talking about instead of using a device to tell people what benefits they'll get or do you have this challenge let's just engage them based on how they feel right and the story that we came up with is that when they are dealing with governance compliance and risk they feel like they're spinning a roulette wheel if they haven't organized it organized their software and systems properly right they're not in control they feel like they're spinning a roulette wheel every time they're gambling so let's create a roulette wheel that they can spin so they can talk about how they feel about this with our account managers who are there rather than trying to get people interested in a demo of some software that's just some mouse moving around clicking buttons on a screen. Hmm. And when you put a big roulette wheel or you know those like spinning wheels that they have on TV, mm. when you put one of those in a conference room and people come up and spin it to get a number and you play roulette, you attract a lot of attention and then people come over and talk to you about their feelings about this, not about. Yeah, know, suddenly you're not selling to them, you're connecting with them about their cha- about their emotions, which is what storytelling does, right? Connects mm. with emotion. And you're no longer selling and people are like, like, I don't know if you've ever experienced like a, like a trade show for B2B. Oh no, sales. I've been, I used to sell everywhere, but yeah, I've been on right. those. so you know how like you have the you got the conference rooms and then you've got like the 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 exhibition hall (laughs) exhibition hall and you've got the food in the middle of the exhibition hall yeah yeah. and you've got all of the vendors with their stands around it and the vendor all the people come out for lunch and the vendors and their sales reps buttoned up ready to go like come on lads this is time to get some leads and everyone kind of grabs their lunch and they like stand like 
a flock of terrified sheep (laughs) as close (laughs) to the buffet table as possible because they fucking know that as soon as someone goes, like as soon as someone falls off, a sales rep's going to be like, can I get your attention? I want to sell you some stuff. Can you scan your conference pass? And none of them want that, right? None of them want that experience. The buyer hates it. They're all buyers. They're all on the market for all these people's services. But because these people want to tell them what they do their way, rather than engage with them at an emotional level at the way the person wants to be engaged with, Mm. you end up with this like terrified sheep in the middle of a paddock being surrounded by fucking wolves situation. Mm. It's funny. Like every time, every time I go to a trade show, I see it. (laughs) I'm like, this is funny. Like this is just, you know, it's like this Mm. out, you know, the trade show wouldn't happen without the sponsors that are putting it on with their stands. But the price of the whole situation is this like hour of like desperate avoidance by the actual customer who just wants to have their lunch in peace. (laughs) And everyone's like, no, I need to sell to you to tell my boss I got an ROI from this event. Yeah. Because I used to pay for my own stand. It was, it was, yeah, it's the same situation, right? Mm. It's like, so no one's, but no one's ever sat down and gone, what would someone actually like? at this situation in this situation how can we make their day better how can we get to get them get our team onto their level so that they can feel safe engaging with us yeah no. you know i never thought of it i just i didn't i only had a table nothing on it i just stopped people <laughs> yeah you just went stop <laughs> yeah no i'd say for, i'll um situation openers so yeah so I, I i used to stop people in the street for a living and yep. um think of like Poor people you. Poor me. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, because it's scary. Uh, <laughs> so I could never do that. Anyway, yeah, we could do it straight after. Get some clients. The- <laughs> nah, no, I would do that too. I get nervous. I'll be back to the office. <laughs> straight back to work. So think of it like a person's walking through life with preconceived ideas, and they're going to have a natural reaction. They have this stimulus. They react like this. Yeah. So you need to deviate that journey. And how yeah, do you totally. De- yeah, so how you deviate yeah. that is by acknowledging something personal about them or is so different from what the experience is, they can't go from here to here in terms of the stimulus. Yeah. So you don't go, hi, how are you? You say something like, are you friendly? And yeah. Then, and then they have to pause or you acknowledge something about what they're wearing or, you know, I got in trouble because I said this guy broke his arm. I was like, oh, how'd, how'd the high five championship go? <laughs> and I did it twice because I forgot who it was. I did like a different you got to say something. I feel, I feel like <laughs> body language is telling me you might contribute something on that. So, but it's pattern interruption. Yeah. Right? Same. It's using emotion, an emotional connection to something to interrupt a pattern. So, like every time, and that was what the whole roulette thing was about, mm. right? It was about presenting something that was completely different to what anybody had experienced in that context before so that they were, so that people were naturally piqued by their curiosity and emotional desire to engage because people do want to engage rather than their response to years and years of pattern interruption of pattern sorry like of experiencing the pattern yeah, yeah. which is every time i go and talk to one of these sales reps who smiles at me they give me their business card they ask for my name and email address and then i get fucking 300 calls from an sdr over the next 12 months <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, yeah. instead of like oh that looks different that looks interesting right 
And then 300 calls. And then 300 calls. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's not like, I know we laugh about that, yeah, but yeah. one of my biggest learnings has been how do you stop it from being 300 calls from an SDR? Yeah, yeah. How do you recognize that the buyer is at an asynchronous point and the buyer journey is asynchronous. You can't control it. It's non-linear, right? They, they do things the way they want to do things. You can't influence that. You can't change that. So how do you just make sure you're there at those points to engage with when they're ready, right? Rather than trying to oversell, hmm. right? There's a lot of interesting insights, man. Like, yeah, because I, I think of, like a lot of mistakes I was making and I see other people make is that you copy what other people are doing because you assume it's working, but most businesses are unprofitable. Like they're not right. doing well and you're copying the blind. Totally. Headline. So by the time like sales emails are my favorite yeah, okay. example of this, by the time like a template set of the best sales emails that will work for you have erupted into like the mainstream seller consciousness, mm. the buyer probably already recognizes the pattern and has probably already trained themselves to ignore it. Like, have you ever read Predictable Revenue by Aaron What's-His-Face, the guy who started the inter- inside sales team at Salesforce? Oh, no. Wrote a book called Predictable Revenue, had a, like, beautiful, like, really well-researched, really well-thought-out email cadence in it, asking for a referral to the decision-maker rather than direct to the decision-maker, can I solve your problem? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, classic psychology stuff you know people are far more likely to respond to something when it's got the name of the um the name of the decision maker or the person who's referred them in it someone they know familiarity all that sort of stuff it's an easy it's an easy win because like i'll never call you again if you refer me to this person kind of thing so we wrote a whole book about how they grew salesforce from to like a hundred million dollars of inside sales arr just using this one cool trick Mm. So people started reading it and then people started copying the templates. And now if someone goes, if someone gets an email that says, who's the right person to talk to about X, they don't even fucking open it. They just delete it because they know exactly what's coming because it's a template that's being modified, Hmm. right? And that's where, you know, I get sales have to do stuff like that because they have to meet their number and they have to do this stuff. But as a marketer, that's where our job needs to change. It's not from. It's not like how how do we do the the best practice thing that someone's done before? How do we find examples of what's worked? It's how do we find it? how do we find new ideas to challenge patterns to pattern interrupt people so they're going to engage with us on a completely different level to what they're used to. You know, I, I see marketing as good sales and sales as good marketing. So I actually would yeah. agree that. Well, I disagree and say that that sales should be exactly what you describe. Yeah. A variation from the norm. Be better than the last is what I say. Totally. What does everyone else do and do it differently? Like, yeah, I mean, sales is a subset. I think the other thing that we often get confused about is terminology as well, right? So like sales is part of marketing. Advertising is part of marketing. Product's part of marketing. Like marketing is a big catch-all term at like a top level, right? And then we often tend to think of it as just kind of the promotion part of the mix when we talk about it at a business level that's not a hugely interesting insight. It's just kind of like, I think it gets confusing for people when the nomenclature always shifts around from marketing to sales to advertising to Mm. all this sort of stuff, right? But yeah, you're totally right. It's like, because it's all good storytelling. It's all good building connections with people, getting them to pay attention to your message, doing it from a place where you believe that them paying attention to your message will be a good thing for them. 
right? You know. Yeah, I, I think I think the main plaque as I'm just learning marketing, sales done a long time. The main deviation I think from marketing and sales is you're able to invoke the story from the other person and that's better selling. Yeah. Whereas marketing is showing you understand that person because you can't go back and forth. Yeah, to- totally. But or I think you can disagree. Just well, disagree. I no, kind, don't, no I but. Can, you know what I mean? I kind of disagree go on. with you here because I think that that represents an older school sales model where the seller oh, yeah, had yeah. control over the experience for the buyer. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, sellers have much less control over the experience for the buyer. Like, look at financial advice, mm-hmm. right? Like, I started my career working... My dad's a financial advisor. I started working my, my career working in the financial advice industry. Oh, yeah. And, cool like... God, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's boring. That's why I'm leaving. Go back 30 years, and all of the information was with the seller. The information about the products, the information about how to buy them, the access to buying them all of that sort of stuff was 100% owned by the seller. Nowadays, between the information that people share on the internet, between the access to products, applications online, quotes online, all of that sort of jazz, the buyer doesn't need you anymore Mm. to do the actual transaction. Mm -hmm. Right? They don't need you to do, like sales used to be all about fulfillment for the buyer they don't need you to do the transaction they need you to be there emotionally to hold their hand and help them make a decision that of something that they feel is too complex they feel uncertain confused afraid about mm-hmm. right that's the role of the seller and so that changes the role of sales because it means that you're there to be a storyteller that continues on the job that marketing's done telling them the story to get to that point right you're there to help keep them emotionally engaged with the purchase decision yeah, I, I get you. I, That's I think, kind of my like. So we have to change because it's asynchronous. Asynchronous now, right? It's not book a meeting, come into my office, sit down in my office, and we'll talk about this deal. It's like, yes, we might do that, but that's going to be five percent of my time in the process. The remaining ninety-five percent of my time is going to be spent talking to your competitors, doing my own research, thinking about what I want looking at other stuff on the internet, getting retargeted by content, whatever the hell it is, listening to a podcast about it, right? It's like the the balance of power is shifting the way we need to engage is shifting as well. Yeah, I, I agree on the, um, there's more knowledgeable buyers and they're more accessible information. Yep. The, where I deviate is, even if it was 1900, you never actually sold anything to do with the product. Of course. Because uh, an example we used to do selling a medical product, and it d- doesn't matter what we're selling, we're always selling the same thing. Do you want to achieve this thing? This thing's holding you back. And we emphasize that pain, so it's so painful that you need yeah. to take action now. So w- what I was saying is that the st- it's, it's never telling the story to them. It's, it's unraveling their story in a way that you acknowledge that you know the ending that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. So that like that's the... And that's the being a guide on the journey piece rather than yeah. being the, you know. Storyteller. The storyteller. That's why I took it. But I, I think, I suppose my, I think the bit about the transactional power still stands though, right? Yeah. Because it, it, it's like. They don't need you. They just, don't need you. Yeah. They can make, they can go fulfill themselves. Yeah. Right. So as a sell, as a seller, 
that guiding has to happen so much more on the customer's terms than it did before, right? It has to be so tailored to them rather than tailored to your process, right? Your process needs to be their process, yeah, not your process. Yeah, fair. Well, we're done an hour thirty. <laughs> right. So glorious. Well, we, pro- we probably should shut up then. <laughs> we talked about marketing. We so, did actually. We got there at the end. So, do you, in a simple way, you help businesses tell stories. Yeah. So we help tech businesses tell stories. We're a results-driven creative agency <laughs> in the technology industry. Now, give us a compelling story for your business. Give us a compelling story for our business. Okay. So, and don't oversell it because everyone's like blah, blah blah oversell it. Just be like, you know. Sure. The future of New Zealand is selling innovation. Hmm. We can't just sell innovation to New Zealand. We have to sell it to the world. To sell it to the world, we have to tell compelling stories. We help IT businesses tell compelling stories. Oh, yeah. I like that. And boom. Thanks for coming on. No worries. (laughs) Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun.